Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Hello there and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials where together you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships while we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And as I always say at the beginning of every episode, if this is the very first time you're ever listening to my voice, I want to say welcome, super excited to welcome you to the family and to hang out with you week after week. And if you're returning, I appreciate you so much for coming back to listen to all the incredible wisdom that's being shared from the guests on the show. And today, you and I get to hang out with Justin Donald. Entrepreneur Magazine calls Justin Donald the Warren Buffett of lifestyle investing. He is a master of low-risk cash flow investing, specializing in simplifying complex financial strategies, structuring deals, and disciplined investment systems that consistently produce profitable results. His ethos is to create wealth without creating a job. In the span of 21 months and before his 37th birthday, Justin's investments drove enough passive income for both he and his wife Jennifer to leave their jobs. Following his simple investment system and 10 commandments of lifestyle investing, Justin negotiated deals with over 100 companies, multiplied his net worth to over eight figures, and maintained a family-centric lifestyle in less than two years. And then, just two years later, he doubled his net worth again. Justin distilled his lessons and proven investment system that reliably generates repeatable returns into the Lifestyle Investor podcast and the best-selling book, The Lifestyle Investor, The Ten Commandments of Cashflow Investing for Passive Income and Financial Freedom, which was released in January 2021. All proceeds from copies of The Lifestyle Investor go to Love Justice International, a nonprofit fighting human trafficking in 17 countries. The Donalds are based in Austin, Texas, and love adventure-based international travel with their beloved daughter. In this episode, I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, Justin debunks some common myths we hear in the financial world, including why he believes that the best way to become wealthy is not by building your 401k, following traditional investment advice, or investing in the stock market. And the other myth that he busts is that you can't upgrade your lifestyle without sacrificing profit. You'll hear Justin share on the show about how instead of buying a car outright, he actually buys a cash flow producing asset that covers his vehicle payment. So that's just a little bit of a taste of what you're going to learn today. Number two, we're going to dive into some of Justin's coveted 10 commandments of lifestyle investing, including how he creates cash flow immediately, how Justin gets his principal back within one to three years, and how he finds invisible deals and became his own bank. 
And number three, you're going to hear why Justin loves investing in mobile home parks as an investment vehicle. And you're going to hear a crazy story about how Justin's wife woke him up in the middle of the night to tell him that there was a special unit of the SWAT team dressed in hazmat suits that showed up as one of his mobile at one of his mobile home parks. So if you want to find out what happened, you'll obviously have to listen to the episode. But before we dive in, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out, which this week goes to CC Connector, who left a review on Apple Podcasts saying, does his homework. Brandon Fong is a great host. He does his homework, which means he prepares very well. He asks intelligent, insightful questions and guides the interview with a light and knowledgeable touch. Brandon brings out the best in his guests so that he can bring the best to his audience. Definitely on the list of podcasts worth subscribing to. So thank you so much for those incredibly kind words, CC Connector. And if you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, you can head to ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM to find out how to leave a review. And the additional thing I want to say is if you don't want to leave a full review, if you don't want to take the time to do that, you can very simply just tap whatever stars you think I'm deserving of. And that will also help the show. And that also only takes a fraction of a second. Uh, I know Spotify and Apple Podcasts allow you to do that. So if you could do that, and if you don't know how, again, you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM. And that's going to help me out a ton. And I'm going to love all the reviews that come in. I might give you a pre-show listener shout out in the future, and it's going to help to grow the podcast. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with Justin Donald. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mr. Justin Donald, welcome to the show, my friend. Super excited to have you here. Hey, thanks, Brandon. I'm glad to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yes. And I was funny because I was looking at the email when I first reached out to you. And I don't know if you remember this, but basically the gods told me that I needed to talk to Justin Donald because I talked to your good friend, John Broman. John Broman's like, you got to read Justin Donald's book. So I bought your book and then I had Steve Sims on the show. I was researching Steve Sims and I saw you were on that show. And then later that week, I got introduced to Dan King from Fireside Strategic and you were on that show. John Rulin was on my show. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to reach out to Justin. So I'm glad that we've had all this uh, many directions pointing us to being here today. So I'm excited to hang out and, and dive in. Yeah, without a doubt. And anytime I've got someone that's friends with my friends, I just, uh, <laughs> I love connecting. So once I heard that you knew some of my closest friends in the world, I was like, hey, let's do it. Sweet. All right. So let's dive right into the juice of things. So I, or the, the meat of, uh, my wife always makes fun of me for mixing analogies. So there you go. There, I just mixed a few <laughs> in the very beginning before I even opened my mouth. So I want to start with um, something interesting that you did at, at around age 37. You took a sabbatical, you traveled to nine different countries, tried some wine all over the place, paint a picture about what was going on in that time of your life. And maybe some of the decisions that you made that led up to that point. Yeah. So I had worked really hard for many years and I'd never really taken a sabbatical before. Um, I had achieved financial freedom at that point in time, so I didn't need to work, but I still enjoy work. So even though I worked hard to not have to work. It wasn't so that I wouldn't work. I'm not going to sit on the beach and sip pina coladas all day, you know, but I wanted to just work on the things that gave me the most energy. 
And um, I wasn't sure what the next chapter of my life was going to be. And so I wanted to clear some headspace. I wanted to get some quality time with my family. And I just wanted some great cultural experiences and uh, just memorable travel experiences for my family and I together. So that really was it. We, you know, just took this epic trip, traveled all over Europe and um, just spent extended time. You know, we, we went to, uh, yeah, I think we did hit nine countries uh, inside of a pretty short period of time. We spent uh, just under a month in Italy. We brought our babysitter out for that. So she could experience a cool opportunity. It was her first time out of the country. And uh, that gave my wife and I some flexibility to be able to hang. And then we just traveled up and down the um, the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea and just checked out all the cool countries around there. So it was incredible. And it was just a time to reset, uh, figure out what was next. What did I want to spend my time doing uh, with just a total clean slate? Yeah. And clearly some stuff, some of the thinking that you were doing on that trip worked because it seems like you kind of get you got back, you hit the ground running, you, you published the book and you have the podcast now and all that incredible stuff. So sounds like uh, you did some some good thinking time while you were there. So the, the reason why I wanted to start this, because I wanted people to see a little bit of the, the life that you've intentionally designed for yourself. Obviously, the book is called The Lifestyle Investor, but um, I just really want to say how much I admire what you've been able to do and the, how you base it on the core principles of what's important to you and built your family life around there. In the beginning of the book, you can listen to Justin talk about the, the other components of the life that he's designed. But um, just to give people a little bit of a preview of what we're going to talk about for the lifestyle investor. First of all, I'm weird when I say that I like to read the index of the books. I always like to see how a book is structured. So we talk about, you know, you talk about common myths that are over that 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 are in the investing world, four core principles, 10 commandments. And then at the end, Justin shares his goal that he wants the book to be dog-eared by everyone. And I, I could say that I fulfilled that. So I would, I would highly encourage anyone to check it out. But I thought a good place for us to start, Justin, would be some of those common myths. And myth number one that you talk about is that. It's something that I think, you know, something that I was schooled on. It's something I learned about investment. It's about that the best way to become wealthy is to build your 401k, follow traditional investment advice, invest in the stock market. So tell us about why that's a myth and um, what you've done to compensate and go against that myth. Well, the best way to figure out if that works is talk to anyone who used that strategy and see how small of a percentage of people that actually worked for. Talk to your parents. Talk to your parents' friends, talk to, you know, teachers and coaches and whoever it might be, talk to the people that literally invested in qualified plans, did the pension plan, the 401k, did whatever they were, you know, told to do and find out where they are today. Find out how much money they have, find out if they can really retire, see if their nest egg really grew to the level that it's at. You know, it's funny when I went through my book, I mean, I cut a lot of stuff out because there was just so much content. So I kind of whittled this down. I think I ended up with just uh, six myths, but I mean, there are so many of them. This one is just powerful though, because Wall Street has such command over our financial education. And if they can control, if these financial institutions can control where the money goes, then they make more money. Whether you do or not, if they have control of your money, they make more money. So they're just like the banks where they want as much money as frequently and they want you to remove it as uh, few of times as possible. And so often the statements that come from 
you know, financial advisors or financial institutions uh, are a little manipulative if you don't know how to read them, if you don't know that they're averaging numbers versus telling you exactly what your return is. And so I've found that the information is a misrepresentation in order to encourage you to keep your money there, to not take it out and to, on top of that, put more money in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love, I think you share the story of the book about like sitting down, reviewing your statements. They talk about the 7% rate of return you're making. And like, I'm doing pretty good, but then you dig into it and find out what actually happened. And it's like a punch in the gut for, you know, what, what, you know, it was like, you've been tricked to believe that you've been making growth or having progress when that wasn't actually the case. So let's say someone's listening right now and they're like, oh my God, I have all my stuff in index funds or some people, let's say mutual funds or 401ks and all that kind of stuff. And they're like that, you know, maybe I have talked to some people and maybe I, maybe this isn't something that is what I thought it would be. Where does somebody go from there? Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, and first of all, I'm not anti-stock market. I think there's a time and a place for it. But if you got 100% or close to 100% of your assets there, that's quite a bit of exposure. To me, that's overexposed. And then if you have the majority of your money that's in the stock stock market in qualified plans, then you typically don't have access to it unless you're self-directing it. But hardly anyone self-directs it or even knows that they can self-direct it. And then when you can, you're often limited as to what you can invest in. So um, I just wanted to open people's eyes to the fact that you can invest in other ways than just the one way that I think our financial system and the masses invest their money. So if you want to give someone else ownership over your returns, well, then you turn it over to them. Um, I think personally, people should take ownership of their investment dollars because you'll make more most of the time. If you surround yourself with experts, you'll make more than the quote unquote experts. And then you don't have to follow you know, the market cycles and everything like that. And then I do want to point out that if you're going to invest in in the stock market, I do think index funds are a great way to do it because you're getting a cross-section of a lot of different stocks. And if you were to invest in the S&P 500, you know, that's 500 of the largest or best performing, strongest companies in the US. So I do like that, but that's your cheapest way of doing it. Most people have you know, financial advisors or money managers that actually don't perform as well. 95% of money managers perform worse than the S&P 500 index over the last 15 years. And the 15 years prior to that, I think it was 96%. So maybe they got 1% better. Um, So the reality is that most people managing your money are not only doing worse than if you just put it in an index, but they're charging you more. And so that's where it gets, you know, really tough. So that being said, uh, I, I really think that investing in the stock market, unless you have a lot of assets and you can utilize, you know, five, seven, 10 different hedge funds uh, to really get ahead, you're, you're paying a premium to invest. So you're, you're a retail investor you have the highest exposure of fees and the lowest return profile. Even though the stock market has been performing well, there is a tax drag. And then there's also the risk that the market crashes at any time and you lose uh, what you've gained in you know, a matter of an hour or a second mm-hmm. or you know, a moment. Um, so to me, I would much rather be 
on the private side. So in private equity, you can be more of the wholesale pricing. So you get a reduced fee, you get a greater return, and it's a lot more, you have more control. The stock market is a lot more fickle where it's based on emotions and consumer confidence and fear. And it's irrational. Even real estate holdings, you can see how irrational they are, how they, you know, kind of ebb and flow, high and low. Even though the real estate's the same real estate, nothing's changed. The financial statement hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. That to me is is just so, there's so little control. It's so subjective. I mean, it can drop because someone, you know, tweeted whatever they want to tweet it. it the same thing on the other side. So that to me is just a lot of risk. I would much rather figure out how to mitigate risk. And I found on the private side that you can do that a lot easier. You have more control. You can sell if you need to. Um, There's just so many mechanics that are, in my opinion, more in your favor. Yeah. So we're going to skip a little bit back and forth here, but like commandment number one is talking about lifestyle first, right? So like, that's obviously the underlying philosophy of lots of this stuff. And like one of the main ways that you're doing that is specifically cash flow investing. So we'd love for you to share specifically kind of some of the ways that you were structuring those deals so that people can kind of paint a picture in their mind. Like, okay, if I'm not, if I'm hundred percent in, in, you know, like you said, stocks or index fund or something like that, but I want to start transitioning. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like to start being a lifestyle investor and leveraging more cash flow investing in your portfolio. Yeah. And think about it this way. If you are living in a nation that is printing a lot of money, that's every nation, uh, but the US is printing an extraordinarily high amount of money, much more than the other nations, uh, to the point that 40% of the money in circulation right now is just printed in the last two years. Okay. That, I mean, almost half of our money was just printed. So that means your money is becoming worth less. You know, the newest report basically said that inflation is at 7%, 7% in December. That is a 40 year high. And by the way, it's not at 7%. It's worse than that. Okay. This is the conservative, like, let me pick these priced items to come to the 7%. It's worse than that. So if you're not investing, if you're not buying things, your money is losing relevance. It's losing purchasing power. We're in a fiat system where you know these dollars, um, tomorrow it's worth less, worth less than it was today. So understanding that basic principle uh, and and the fact that if you want to hedge against a devaluing dollar, then you need to buy assets that appreciate at the same time or the same degree as the monetary supply. So in other words, you print more money, money becomes worth less, but then it costs, so it costs more money to buy whatever you want to buy. You want to be in the asset that costs more money to buy that's keeping up with the inflation. So, um, and by the way, the stock market can be that, but uh, it's just volatile, right? So I, I think that you know, small percentage can can be there, and and keep in mind that if you're investing in the stock market, it should be for the long haul, um, unless you're a professional day trader. So what I transition into are you know deals that I have some control over. So you know, I started with real estate. I started specifically with mobile home parks, and I learned that business. Now I've invested in every type of real estate 
unless it's super obscure, I've done storage units and industrial distribution centers and single family homes and land. And I mean, you name it, I've done it. Um, Apartment complexes. Uh, So I like that because what I invest in has cash flow. I like to buy assets that are going to keep up with inflation that are also going to produce cash flow. And if I can improve those assets, then I can get appreciation on top of the automatic appreciation because of inflation. Hmm. Love that. Lots of food for thought for everyone thinking. Let's let's address one more myth and then we can dive into some of the, the foundational principles and the commandments that you have listed in your book. The other one I thought was really interesting to address is that you can't upgrade your lifestyle without sacrificing profit. And this was the thing that specifically caught my mind was um, how you think about buying a new car. So let's say you want to buy a new car, Justin, how do you approach that? Well, I've always looked at cars as a liability, you know, for the first time in, in my history, since I've been alive, you can buy a car and it can hold its value because of some of the supply shortages. But in general, uh, a car, it loses money every day, it loses money right after you buy it. It is worth less the next day um, as a general rule. So instead of buying something that loses value, I'd rather buy an asset, make, you know, buy an investment property, buy something that generates the cash flow that can cover the payment of that vehicle. I don't need to buy the vehicle outright in cash, even if I can afford to do it. I don't do that because why not have an asset cover that liability? And so anything that I have bought that, um, you know, is a higher price point, that's kind of the way that I've done it. I funded it through uh, asset acquisition. Hmm. Another, another, I, I mean, I, it's something that you, I, as soon as I read it, I'm like, that makes so much sense, but I never even really thought about it that way. So <laughs> lots of these mind blowing things that are happening inside this, you, you know, your content here. So let's keep, let's keep going. Let's start diving into some of the four principles that you talk about that are the foundational concepts that underlie some of these 10 commandments. And um, just so everybody, you know, obviously go get the book, but there's mindset, there's structure, there's filters, and there's negotiation. And the one that you put first uh, is mindset. I think that's something that's a topic that's come up on the show so much. And I think it's very, it makes so much sense. that that's the very, very first one that you put on there. At the end of the book, you talk about how most people have like baggage related to money or that lots of people have unconscious beliefs about it. And so I would love to dive in here because I think this is very applicable, um, especially if you grew up in a context where you were given ideas about money that may not necessarily be true, or you have these kind of invisible scripts that are running behind you. So what are what are some of the ways that you have been able to first identify some of those maybe unconscious limiting beliefs that you had? And then how have you been able to transition that into something that has been more powerful for you? Yeah, so everyone has beliefs that they either create through their own experience or they adopt from someone else's experience. And so I think it's just really important to decipher which it is. Did you arrive to this conclusion because you experienced this over a long period of time with multiple impressions? Or was this just a one-off weird scenario that you experienced that is the anomaly and you're basing facts on that? Or even worse, are you basing it on someone else's experience who also may be basing it on, you know, uh, a black swan event or an off situation? And so for me, I just started writing down all the things that I had heard, all the things that I believed 
all the things that at least I thought I believed, right? Um, and, and just regarding money, like what I think about money, what I think about building money, what I think about building wealth, what I think about you know anything around it. And some people have baggage around feeling like they're bad if they make money. Um, some people feel like they're not good enough to be able to make money or earn money or grow uh, a strong net worth. I mean, the list goes on and on. And some of this is conditioning. Some of this is, um, you know, unrelated experiences that we kind of relate. It's it's taking other people's projections um, and and making them our own. But we generally do that subconsciously. So I just think getting clear on what that looks like is powerful and your mind is your most powerful tool you have. So just one little shift in the mind uh, can change your whole world. So to me, everything stems from your mindset because your, your mindset adopts these beliefs. And the moment you break a belief, it's, it's kind of like you have these aha moments and it's like, whoa, I never believed that this could happen or I never thought about this or, or you read something in a book like I've done a ton of times. It's like, oh, that's so obvious. Why did I never think of it this way? Well, it's because I was conditioned to think of it another way based on my surroundings. Is there a specific example you may have from like, let's say childhood? I feel like that's where lots of these, these beliefs are. Is there, are there any ones that you were journaling, you uncovered something and you're like, holy, holy crap, I can't believe this is here. And then that translated to a massive transformation. Is there a specific example you have? Yeah. I mean, very scarcity mindset, uh, beliefs and, and phrases around money, even like, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. Like that one just echoes in my mind. Um, you know, Hey, we're not rich, you know, or that, you know, some people that, that, that's not a life for us, right. Mm-hmm. That we don't live that life. We don't have those experiences. Just, limiting beliefs, scarcity mindset, anything that limits our potential or our opportunities, because the reality is uh, it's not a limited resource. I mean, it's evident the Fed's printing money galore right now. You know, it's not. And at whatever point in time, something becomes obsolete anyway, something else takes its place. Whenever some natural resource becomes so limited, there's another uh, source that will replace it. And so the same is going to be true for this. And you can see this in, you know, uh, other forms of, of um, currency, or you can see this in a cryptocurrency or precious metals or whatever, all these different things that have value, hold value. So to even think that money is scarce and hard to come by uh, creates a prison that is really hard to escape. Uh, I guarantee the person that thinks that money is really easy to come by and that there are an abundant number of ways to be able to produce and earn and grow net worth. I guarantee that person's going to have an easier path to financial freedom. It doesn't mean yeah. that the scarce thinking person can't. It just means they have something to overcome with their mindset and with their beliefs. And they can overcome it. I overcame it. You know, it, it, it's, it's very possible, but there are some hoops to jump through. And one of the importances of that is surrounding yourself with people that play the game of life and business and investing the way that you want to, so yeah. that they'll, and, they'll naturally influence you. 
Yeah, I love that. And I would encourage anyone to, to specifically examine narratives and stories that you've experienced. Like mom and dad, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> I love you very much. Uh, I have, I have, I just w- immediately one that popped into my head about a, a story was like, we had an overdraft once on a library card. And I remember my mom being really upset about how much we had to pay to this you know, for the library overdraft fee. And like, those are the small little stories where it's like, as you're growing up, if you see something like that, like those are, those can form and fester and grow um, as, as, um, you know, things that are not serving you anymore. So I found that at least in journaling and in just like that prompt that Justin just shared, it's like, what are those stories? What are those mindsets that you're holding on to that you don't even realize that you're holding on to? And until you can make it go from unconscious to conscious, then you can actually move it. But if it's just sitting below the surface, you know, that, that makes it really hard to move with. So love that. And obviously there's, there's not enough time to cover all the, the different uh, foundational concepts, but mindset I thought was a good one. So let's start diving into some of the, the 10 commandments. And I figured maybe there's some stories that we could tell that'll cover multiple commandments at once. So I'm trying to do like a, a double dip here just for value and time, but um, let's start out with a story and then let's kind of unpack some of the commandments that came from it. So this one comes, Justin, you're lying in bed, your wife taps you on the shoulder and she, she had a call and she found out about a news story that something happened about one of your investments. What, what, what did you wake up to? What did you find out? And what did it have to do with your investments? Oh, this was a crazy story. Um, I mean, it's almost like this worst case scenario. It's like, how could this happen? But uh, we had one of our mobile home parks that we had bought. And this actually aesthetically wasn't even the worst one. It was actually pretty decent. Um, I imagined actually that it happened to a different one, but, uh, we got a call that, uh, that on the front page of the newspaper in the town that this park was in, uh, there was this guy in a hazmat suit and, um, that apparently there was a drug dealer that was cooking meth. And it was in one of our, um, you know, in one of the homes in the park. And it was this huge deal. So you had like, you know, SWAT was out there and you had the, <laughs> the fire department because it's, you know, it's a, a hazard. You know, you could if one home catches fire, it can catch a bunch of them. Fire. I mean, so it was just a spectacle. And the news just I mean, it just kind of rip this park to shreds and, and, you know, the owners as well. Uh, and so, and my wife had found out from her parents. And so she was feeling like, oh man, you know, did we make a mistake here? I'm thinking, goodness sakes, talk about horrible (laughs) timing. Um, and the funny thing about it is the, uh, they ended up, like going into this home. So they they had all this press about it, but they went into the home and there was not a meth lab and the guy was (laughs) not cooking meth and he was not selling drugs and they were totally wrong. And they, you know, found the guy, caught him, but there was nothing to catch him. They couldn't even hold him because he did nothing wrong. And so this huge story was made up. And of course, the media never retracted it, not right. <laughs> on TV, not in the newspaper. But I'll tell you what, it garnered a lot of attention. And, you know, I think uh, sometimes you hear, you know, bad press is still press, you know, any type of press is good press, even bad press. And 
Um, we have filled that park up. It is uh, at a near 100% occupancy and people love it. It's actually a, a pretty um, aesthetically pleasing park with a lot of wooded areas and everything. So it ended up working out just fine. But man, we we had a little bit of a scary moment. We were like, uh-oh, <laughs> this was early on in our investing journey. And we're like, did we just make the biggest mistake ever? So I'm glad yeah, it worked yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, I just I could just imagine just like groggily eyed opening your eyes and then you see it like newspaper you're, and they're like bashing on the, the owners of the stuff. So I'm so glad that it turned out okay. And I, I'm glad that you kind of get to laugh about it now. But part of the reason why I wanted to tell the story is because I feel like some people are thinking mobile home parks. Why are you investing in mobile home parks? And this has to do with one of your commandments of creating cash flow immediately. So can you maybe, now that we've heard the fun story about the hazmat and SWAT, let's talk a little bit about the finances and why you decided to invest in mobile home parks. Yeah. So mobile home parks, there's a lot of pros to mobile home parks. First of all, they're a limited resource. There's only 44,000 of them in the U S they basically only invest. They only exist in the U S there are a few in Canada um, they don't really exist overseas. They often were built to to house soldiers, you know, back uh, during one of the wars, and um, and so they kind of stuck around. And it's hard to get the zoning to build new ones. And so you have about a hundred that get redeveloped every single year. You probably have I don't know five, maybe ten that get built that are new ones where you can actually get the zoning. So there are less and less every single day of the year. So, uh, and it's in affordable housing. So you've got a high supply for, or a low supply for housing, but a high demand for it. So it's just, it's as affordable of housing as you can get, but it's also the best form of affordable housing because you actually don't share a wall with neighbors or a roof ceiling with, with, you know, anyone you've got a yard, uh, you've got your own room and it is, you know, it's your, you're in a neighborhood. So um, I just think that from the standpoint of quality of life, it's it's a great investment. Uh, it's easy to keep full because people need that type of housing. You have, um, it, it's the least consolidated real estate asset class, meaning that there are more mom and pop owners in that asset than anyone else, any other asset in real estate, because uh, institutional money just hasn't gobbled it up yet. So this is happening. You're starting to see a lot more Wall Street dollars in it. And a lot of these uh, private equity firms that want to buy uh, at a pretty big clip and they're willing to pay a premium for it. But I mean, you're still at a point right now where it's, you know, only about 10% um, institutionalized. So the vast majority of the owners are just mom and pop baby boomers looking to retire. And it's a great place to invest where you can get. So because it's not highly institutionalized, you get better rates on it. Uh, You can buy it at a higher cap rate or capitalization rate than any other real estate. And it's easy to improve the properties to raise rents, to fill occupancy or to fill vacancies, uh, to grow your occupancy and, and bring new people in. So uh, and often the people you buy it from have expenses that don't belong. They spend too much or they overspend on, you know, a bunch of things or they live their life through it and don't properly expense. And so you can trim expenses for, you know, some pretty easy wins. Cool. So I want to, I want to zoom in on this mobile ho- home park and I, I want to make this applicable for somebody that maybe had a reaction. Like I'm never investing in a mobile home park. That doesn't even sound 
you know, <laughs> sound like anything I would ever touch. But I, I, I think I highlighted one area in this chapter of the book where you're talking about buying mobile home parks and you were talking, this was earlier on in your investing career. So like you were looking at, this is one of your first few investments and you said you were hired a mentor that taught you the tricks of the trade. So I think this is super powerful because anybody that's starting any form of investment, it's, it's wise to start looking into, or at least I do this in my life or anything that I'm doing is like, who's already done this that I can sit and learn from. So I think this is really applicable for anybody. And I would love to hear the first few steps that you took to find that person and how you went about engaging in that conversation in a way that gave you the confidence to actually invest in it. Yeah, there were a few big names. I mean, to me, no one was a big name at that time. I didn't know anyone. But when I started doing some research, I found that there were a few big names in the industry. And then I asked one of my friends who started investing in it, and he kind of directed me to who you know the authorities were. And so um, I learned from a guy uh, named Frank Rolf, who's the fifth largest owner of mobile home parks in the U.S. And he is just an incredible guy that loves teaching and sharing and wants to, you know, really grow this, this asset class and uh, restore it to the place that it used to be. It used to be cool. There used to be no stigma. People wanted to have uh, mobile homes and RVs and travel trailers like that. It, it was kind of like high society if you had that. So it's interesting mm-hmm. to see how it's flip-flop, but really just kind of eliminating the stigma. That's that's his goal. And he just wants to educate people. And he's done an incredible job. And so I started by just taking a boot camp and learning from him. Um, and, you know, the, the rest is history. I mean, I found my first park. And that first park, when I bought it, uh, the income from that park, even after the debt service, covered my wife's after-tax uh, dollars that she brought home from teaching. So literally once we bought that park, she didn't have to teach anymore. And that was huge. So for me to buy one asset <laughs> that could replace my wife's income so she could be a stay-at-home mom, uh, which she wanted to do, um, that was really important. And mm-hmm. you know, the the next park that we bought replaced our income just to survive. So it literally covered our mortgage, our utilities, our car payments, um, our food. It covered everything. So with two purchases, I was able to release the weight and stress of having to provide. And it just bought me freedom and clarity. It just bought me time. So I didn't, I wasn't at a point where I didn't have to work necessarily because we hadn't covered lifestyle yet. But I was at a point where I knew if I didn't want to work, I could just stop because we could cover our bare minimum expenses to survive. And just knowing that allowed me to approach my job differently, how I spent my time differently. And I really started shifting my energy to building more of the lifestyle that I wanted versus going through life on autopilot, responding to other people, putting out problems. Um, you know, I felt like I was living a life where I was very, um, you know, it was, it was reactionary versus a life that's very proactive by design with intentionality. I really was in many, you know, at, at many points in time in my professional life, I was a slave I was a slave to my business. I was a slave to 
the money I made. I was a slave to the lifestyle that I wanted to maintain. I was a slave to the security and comfort of doing something I knew and understood. Um, And so there's comfort in that. And it's really hard to break those chains, to break the the golden handcuffs, if you will. But once I broke them, it was one of the greatest feelings in the world because I was able to redirect all my energy to doing the things that filled me up the most and spending time with the people that I love the most. Yeah. There's some massive gold that you just dropped there. I just want to pull out for everyone, but like two things that Justin just mentioned that I think is good homework for anyone. It's like he identified what his bare minimum cost of living was. And then he also identified what the lifestyle he wanted to, to have. And then by leveraging investments to cover those things, he was able to completely free up. I mean, just that, that just was really cool. So I, I love that. That's, that's easy homework for everyone. It's just sit down, look at your expenses and think about how it's actually probably more realistic uh, than many people think. I would, I would assume from some of your coaching that most people haven't done this. I hadn't, I haven't done anything like this. And so reading that was some, some good homework. So love that. There's some, some things for people to do. Let's, let's get into some of the other commandments that I think really will help open the eyes to this world that you've kind of painted uh, and that, that you're creating right now and then you're contributing. And I want to talk specifically about invisible deals. And if you could talk about invisible deals from your deal that you did with Dress Barn and how you ended up uncovering that. Yeah. So invisible deals are basically deals that most people don't know exist. Uh, they're deals that are off the beaten path or they're deals that are just not public. And because of that, there's no competition or very little competition. You could look at it as like in real estate. What if you bought direct from the seller who had an unlisted property? Okay. That would be an invisible deal. No one else got in on the competition. You were able to just buy it, agree with that person on a price and uh, a closing and just be done. Uh, And the same thing happens in acquiring companies or buying pieces of companies. And so I've done this in many operating companies where I've come and said, hey, I noticed that, uh, you know, I've got a network that can support you or I've got capital that can support you, you know, expanding. And I'd love to figure out a way where we could create a win-win scenario. And so maybe nothing was for sale, but through conversation and just through planting the seed, people are like, you know what? That's a great idea. We can create, you know, a winning one plus one equals three type of of formation. And so um, this would be true with the investment dress barn. So when I first learned about this, this was a deal. um, I mean, the company was uh, in bankruptcy. They really, I mean, the leadership, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but, um, their leadership didn't recognize the the future, which is e-commerce. And so, so much money was poured into the retail brick and mortar strategy, but that's just a failing strategy if you don't have uh, the e-commerce to support it, because that's that's the direction everyone's going. And even if it's only 25, 30, 35% of sales in a particular arena, um, that's still a lot of sales if you're not capitalizing on it. And if you're not putting the infrastructure to scale that part of it, every year we're seeing that more and more sales are happening online. So this leadership team didn't see that. They basically ran out of money. Uh, We had an opportunity to buy it. I was the first investor into this and I brought in a bunch of my friends to fund the acquisition of this company. Uh, But what's really interesting about a retail brand is, I mean, this brand had 60 years of... um, 
you know, branding and recognition and uh, a customer base. And so we were able to buy the IP, buy the customer list, buy the website, the domain, I mean, everything uh, for a fraction of what the company is worth. I mean, this company at one point in time uh, was doing hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I mean, just an incredible amount of money. And we were able to buy it for literally a fraction of it. And so the deal structure in that one was pretty cool where um, I was able to invest as a debt investment, meaning if anything goes wrong, I get paid back first. So it's less likely that I lose my money. Uh, I was also able to invest in a collateralized way. So I had the IP collateralized. So if anything messed up, I could sell the IP and make my money back. Um, I did a one-year note and I was able to negotiate equity in the deal for free. So I got all my money back at one year. I had equity in the company. So I have all my risk gone, all my money back. I earned a monthly um, dividend or distribution from that uh, at 20% interest, got all my money back, made my 20%, got a bonus uh, in there as well. And then uh, still to this day, I have equity in that company, even though all my money's out of it. Just goes to show the power of what happens once you start building the right relationships and you have the network that can give you access to those invisible deals that aren't even on the surface or many people's radar. Um, so I just thought that was a cool foreshadowing for what could be possible as you go deeper into this world and show up and help people and network and contribute and add value. And, you know, that's, that's why part of, I'm assuming Justin, why you have the podcast and why I have the podcast. It's like, you just show up and you add value to someone, you have a great conversation and you never know if that might lead to something in the future. Um, and you know, if you come in from the perspective of being a hundred zero, I heard that from a podcast, uh, guest that I had on, it's just like, show up being a hundred percent, not expecting anything in return and good things are going to come back to you, like maybe opening up an invisible deal. So, um, related to the, the, the dress barn investment, um, I, I want to go, I, I think it's an easy segue into this topic. This topic of phantom income, uh, really was really interesting when I read this and I've heard people talk about it before, but not articulated the way that you shared it. You, you share it so clearly. So talk a little bit about phantom income and whole life insurance and how you've been able to leverage that to make some of these investments that you've made. Yeah. So this whole idea of phantom income, I mean, there, there, if you really study it, if you really think about it, there are actually some ways if not structured properly where it can be like a negative tax consequence. But if structured properly, it can be an enhancement and um, it can really accelerate your returns. And so one of the things I learned early on is that um, if I want to grow my wealth, I should probably operate like a bank. Banks get a certain amount of money in deposits and then they lend out about 10 times to one for that deposit. And so they have 10 different ways that they can earn interest. Some, by the way, 11, some 12, but generally right in that 10 area, 10 different investments earning a return on the same dollars. And so I knew that I wanted to be able to create that. I wanted to have that type of, of leverage. I wanted to have that type of uh, exponential compounding. And so I learned about a, you know, the basically a properly structured whole life strategy. And one thing I do want to say is an off the shelf policy is a generally not great policy. It's not in 
your best benefit. It's not in your best interest. There's a lot of things that need to be negotiated, tweaked, additional riders. You really need an expert here. And I'm happy to make a recommendation to who I use. But um, the key here is you get something that really kind of accelerates the growth of your dollars. They compound in a tax-free growth vehicle. And you can borrow against that money to do other investments. And so this is where it gets really fun. So with my first mobile home park, for example, uh, I borrowed my down payment from as a loan against my whole life insurance policy. So I have, I'm earning a return over here. Let's call it six and a half percent is what I'm earning. And that's a guaranteed return. And it is, you know, it compounds tax-free. So it's, it's really nice. And then I borrow that same money and I invested over here in real estate. And in my first real estate deal, I had a 36% cash on cash return. So I got two different returns on the same dollars. Mm -hmm. I did that with dress barn as well. So I earned 20% over here on that dress barn investment, but I took that as a loan against my uh, whole life policy. So I was also earning about six and a half percent over here. So the same dollars equal the same return. And then to take it one step further, which is, this is one of my commandments, which is number four is get your principal back quickly. Um, with that dress barn deal, it was a one-year note. I had all my money back. I had equity because I had an equity kicker. I had all my money back in one year and I could take that same money and reinvest it in another deal. So now, not only do I have my money working in two different places, but now I've got the actual principal back and I can invest it in a third place. And then in a year from there, I can get it back, have equity invested in a fourth place. So over time, I can't do it as quickly as a bank does, but over time, I got the same dollars working in three, four, five, six different deals where I have equity. I have all my risk off the table because I have all my money out of the deal. Everything's house money. So I have five, six returns on the same dollars with no money in. Love that. Super cool for anyone to think I keep, I feel like I keep making the same comment, but, but like all this stuff, open your eyes to this whole new world of things that you can do once you get creative with this kind of investing. So um, let's, I know we're kind of coming up on time here, Justin, I want to ask a question that I'm not quite sure how to ask. So it's going to kind of come out the way that I'm, I'm intending it to come out. But a topic I feel like is not often discussed in this space when it comes to investments is like, let's say you start becoming more successful, you have more money. And this kind of goes back to our mindset question before about like not understanding some of these unconscious beliefs. But sometimes when people's money situation upgrades, their way of spending money doesn't correlate with the the, the unconscious beliefs they have. So as you've grown, how have you thought more about how to spend your money? I feel like many people don't even have a plan for how to spend their money and enjoy their life more. How have you thought about, you know, enjoying the money and the wealth that you've created as and outgrown some of those beliefs that maybe the old programming had? Well, money is only as fun as what you can do with it. And more importantly than that, the people that you do it with. So uh, when I think about wealth, and by the way, when I think about wealth, I think of many more facets than just financial. I think financial is a component of it. I think your physical health, your mental health, your, your spirituality, just like all these different components, your, your you know, intellect, um, all these things are components of, of your overall wealth. But if we're just taking finances here, just taking, you know, 
your ability to, to grow your net worth or to grow what I think is even more important than net worth is your cash flow. Because uh, if you grow your cash flow, you're going to, by default, grow your net worth. But then you're focused on reaping the rewards today, not you know in 10, 20, 30, 50 years when you retire. Um, so you get utility today. Um, but I just think that uh, what you want to do is create experiences with people that you want to spend time with. You see, material possessions they break, they get old, they go out of style. They're only exciting in the moment. And then you need the next thing. There's almost like this, um, you can get addicted to the, you know, to, to, you know, it's, it's kind of like a drug, right? You're like, Oh, I need the next new cool thing, but it's just stuff. I like spending my money on experiences for my family, for my friends, having memories that are shared and, that to me is real wealth. Yeah. Here's a, hopefully it's like a more of a laser question. Can you think about the highest, uh, I don't want to say, I guess ROI is the first one that comes to mind. The highest ROI in an experience. Like what is one of the best experiences you're like, that was one of the best investments of my money on an experience with people I love ever. Like what, what are one of those? <laughs> I mean, for me, it's almost all like travel. I love to travel. I mean, I've got endless trips. Uh, you know, I did this epic uh, safari in South Africa with friends that, I mean, I'm never going to forget that trip. I mean, um, I mean, one of my friends who helped me set it up, like, I mean, it's, we, we share these moments and these experiences forever when we had an elephant, you know, charge our little thing and we were scared for our life where we had <laughs> camcorders and we literally dropped it in the middle while we thought we were going to get trampled and we didn't. Uh, but, you know, moments like that, moments where we can go, you know, with my family and travel the world, go to Fiji. You know, I did this on a really fun trip uh, with a friend that was, you know, putting together just an awesome think tank of people for um, a cool mastermind event and doing, you know, epic water sports and, uh, you know, experiences that you'll tell people about for years and years to come. So that to me is what it is. But, you know, and I could take it another step further where, it doesn't have to be travel. If, if travel's tough or time, but trying to buy time back is hard right now, it could be just an epic meal with, um, you know, a chef and a cool experience and people around. And, um, you know, they have a special menu for you, or you open a special bottle of wine, or you do, you know, you, you host a party at your place and you hire a bartender and you, you know, have a fancy event. I mean, there's so many ways you can do it, but the idea here is to create memories. And I will just say, if anybody wants to go deeper on that subject, uh, we, uh, one of Justin's best friends, John Broman, was on the show. That whole episode was how to be a moment maker. So I guess it makes sense that you guys are really good buddies. So if anybody wants to learn how to create those experiences, those moments with the people that you love, that you're never going to forget, maybe it's not an elephant charging at you in a safari, but there's lots of other ways that you can do that kind of stuff and engineer it. And John is one of the best people in the world at that. And so love that. Well, Justin, uh, let's kind of wrap things up here. I know you got to get going here. So um, outside of the book, where can people find out more about you and everything that you're up to? Well, first of all, if anyone wants to get the book that doesn't have it yet, um, you can go to uh, lifestyleinvestorbook.com. And what I'll do for your audience is give everyone a chance to get it for free. They just have to pay for shipping. 
Um, so that's one option. You can, of course, go to Amazon. All the proceeds from this book go to Love Justice International. It's a, uh, a charity that stops human trafficking. It's, it stops, you know, really, it's mainly kids being trafficked. And uh, I just feel really good about helping not only teach people financial freedom, but to buy back children's human life freedom, real raw freedom. Um, so that's where you can find the book. If you go to justindonald.com, I've got a whole bunch of things. Um, there's uh, a blog. I've got my podcast. Uh, so a bunch of you know free stuff that I do. And then I've got an online course. I just rolled out um, a master class on mobile home park investing that I think goes live literally any day. I've got a, a master class on really kind of taking your wealth to the next level uh, with actual investing and uh, with unique life insurance strategies. I've got uh, a mastermind that is a community of like-minded people um, that is, uh, you know, an application process. It's a, it's pretty hard to get into and it's a, a high barrier to entry. So I will throw out that caveat, but for the right person, it could be an incredible fit. And we most certainly have some millennials in the group. So love that. Uh, yeah. So any cool. of those can be found there. Awesome. Well, you heard him, ladies and gentlemen, justindoddle.com or lifestyleinvestorbook.com would highly recommend you pick up a copy. And I just want to have a really quick conversation with you listening right now. I always like to say this at the end of an episode. If you're brand new and you chose to be hanging out with me and Justin today, you can be listening to any other podcast in the world, but you spent the time with us. And for that, I am so grateful for you. It's an honor to have you hanging out with us. And if you're returning, I am also grateful for you. You're absolutely what makes this show possible. Uh, you know, I appreciate you for coming week in and week out. And I want to say on top of that, if you're new or you're returning, the one favor that I always have to ask is I say this every time, but my podcast or podcasts have changed my life. When people share a good episode, they can absolutely make a difference. So if something that Justin has shared with you today, maybe it was uh, the crazy story about the mobile home park and how that actually transformed his life um, or some of the commandments that we talked about or the mindset things that we talked about, this can absolutely change someone's life if you share that with them. So it will make both of our days if you do that. But whether you choose to do that or not, or not I appreciate you listening. And Justin, thank you so much for hanging out today. This has been a blast, my friend. Thanks, Brandon. This has been awesome. And just a shout out to you. I just want your listeners to know, I think I'm on a lot of podcasts and I think you are one of the best that I have met at curating content and just having great energy, having great questions and having really incredible flow. So major shout out to you. Thank you, Justin. Really appreciate that. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, my friend.